Hello and welcome to our 2017 educational webinar series. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Our focus this month is on HIPAA and PCI compliance. We are so pleased to have Jennifer Kirschenbaum back with us today, presenting Is This a HIPAA Breach? And if so, what to do? Jennifer Kirschenbaum is the managing partner of Kirschenbaum & Kirschenbaum Healthcare Department. Jennifer devotes her practice to assisting practitioners in all aspects of private practice, office-based surgery practice, Article 28 facility information and operation, independent practice association formation and operation, as well as hospital-based practice and hospital relationships and arrangements. Practitioners contact Jennifer at all stages of practice, from their first employment agreement review and negotiation, their first lease, their first partnership agreement, first patient issue, first lawsuit, first HIPAA complaint or hospital contract, collection issues, audit through partnership structuring, mergers and acquisitions, practice sale, hospital employment or closure, and everything in between. In addition to managing and triaging healthcare matters for the healthcare department, Jennifer focuses her practice on regulatory compliance with federal stark and anti-kickback statutes and related state laws, transactional matters, transactional matters, Medicare, Medicaid, third-party payer audit defense, licensure issues and defense, litigation strategy, and general practice management matters. Jennifer and her team at Kirschenbaum and Kirschenbaum regularly lecture at organized medicine functions, grand rounds, and residency programs. Okay, go ahead, Jennifer. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. I appreciate it. I appreciate being asked to speak today by First Healthcare Compliance. It's my pleasure to be presenting. Our topic is HIPAA breach and what to do. So before I get started, I just want to specify that what we're going to cover today, because we have a broad base of participants, are really just the federal laws. Each state does have potentially more specific HIPAA regulations uh, that, in my experience, generally could apply to uh, the, the treatment of minors, um, for the most part, uh, possibly some additional disclosures or timings of disclosures or possibly charges um, related to record disclosures, what you can charge per page for a production, things like that. But today we're going to stick to the federal, so that way it applies to everyone who's on the call. And while there is tremendous, tremendous um, amounts of information in the uh, federal statute, we're going to make our discussion today a little bit more general on um, the basics of HIPAA we'll go over, and then we'll talk about some of the recent enforcement actions uh, from the Office of Civil Rights, which is who I coined the HIPAA police. They're the ones who are out there uh, looking at what's happening. So I think that the bio that Dr. Brooks presented was uh, very comprehensive, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing our firm. I will say that I am uh, very pleased with the team that we've compiled uh, here at K&K, we have about uh, 16 attorneys, and um, I would say about six of them are involved day-to-day -day with our healthcare practice in different capacities of transactional litigation experience, and uh, most healthcare departments around the country, whether it's a, a massive firm of 1,000 lawyers or a small boutique practice, uh, generally has only four to seven or eight uh, healthcare-specific people. So we actually fairly have a, a large healthcare department comparatively to other firms. Um, and a broad knowledge base uh, on how to help defend our practitioners and healthcare facilities. So any questions that do come up, we do take um, uh, for uh, first uh, healthcare compliance 
uh, free consults. So we're happy to, to speak to you. And you can always call or email me with any questions as they come up. And if it's something specific that does require retention, we would let you know that before you get any kind of rogue bill. So um, please feel comfortable knowing that you do have support um, out there and places to send questions to. Uh, any of these topics that possibly come up in the day-to-day -day operations of your businesses, you can always feel free to reach out. Um, so when I speak with, with clients, uh, the majority of my clients use, utilize me in, in a general counsel capacity. And whether they're a, a, a one-position office or an Article 28 uh, large ambulatory surgery center who we represent, or even a hospital, which we do some hospital representation as well, um, uh, they ask, you know, what are, what are the big things in your mind, Jennifer, that could really take me down? You know, what do I have to watch out for? And my answers to that um, are actually not really set forth on this slide. Uh, the content of this presentation is really going to mostly be from my, my comments, not really the slides. So, um, you know, please tell uh, your colleagues that are going to ask, what did you learn on this? Don't just send them the slideshow. They can hopefully find the recording um, through first healthcare compliance and listen to it. But the three big things that I see, for the most part, are um, uh, payer audit, uh, of course, because if you end up in prepay review, uh, it could just be absolutely devastating to your practice. And then a post-payment audit where you have to pay back a lot of money also could be um, horrible. Uh, but really the prepay where you have a, a cramp on the account receivables. Um, I won't list it in the same category in my mind because it's, it's more preventable. But of course, obviously, a drastic, uh, um, horrible choice in, uh, in your revenue cycle management selection, picking the wrong billing company could cause the same problem as well, where you're just not getting your claims out. That is, is, is crippling for any, any organization of any size if, if you don't have money coming in, of course. So that's number one. Number two is, uh, I view, um, obviously, patient issues. But that one is, is not number one on my list because we all have insurance, or most of us have insurance. If we're operating in states like Florida or some other states that have much more lax malpractice requirements than um, maybe we aren't carrying insurance where we would be preventing against a, a, a claim uh, from a patient. So obviously, you know, patient malpractice claim is, is going to be an issue there. Another potential um, legal liability, uh, slip and fall, things like that. But there's insurance to protect against that. The, the, the third area that I highlight um, is concern over employee conduct and, and, uh, and patient complaint unrelated to malpractice. And that's where I lump in HIPAA exposure. Um, a HIPAA complaint is one of the easiest complaints to be levied against a practitioner uh, because the Office for Civil Rights, who is, is tasked with overseeing HIPAA compliance, uh, is, is a very easy organization to find online. Um, it has a lot of helpful information for patients, also for practitioners. I recommend taking a look at it. Um, and it's very easy to find where to file a complaint. Every complaint has to be investigated that's filed. And as of 2013, the agency's mandate has changed to fine, um, putatively, organizations that are um, not in compliance. So we're going to go through some specific case examples on what that means. But um, prior to 2013, it was actually a very cooperative agency to deal with. When I had clients called where they were being reviewed by the Office for Civil Rights, it was one where I could say confidently, 
listen, you know, what happened? Hopefully we can just work it out. There won't be any real fine, probably. Let's just explain ourselves and they'll let us move on with our life. That's not necessarily the case right now. Now there are huge penalties that are possibly going to be imposed and, uh, and definite exposure. So we're going to get into it today on um, what do we have to report, uh, what does that mean, and how do we kind of keep in check our employees and, and hopefully our patients um, to make sure that we don't have that type of exposure from HIPAA. Another area of, of, of exposure that I see that's massive, and um, um, Dr. Brooks wants me to speak about it at a different time, that's fine, but um, of course is, uh, well, I don't know about it, of course, we try not to think about it, but wage hour lawsuits from employees is really becoming a very hot topic and also employee classification. So even if you're a small organization, if you have an individual who's disgruntled um, and is going to try to cause a problem for you that works with you, that is uh, one of the top three um, areas of liability that I see for any organization. If you're a much larger institution, of course, if you have one employee who's going to claim that they weren't paid proper overtime, um, many states impose treble damages, so it could be three times damages of what was owed for back pay. Uh, they could get a couple of extra people to sign up with them, and all of a sudden you have a class action on your hands, and that could potentially sink your organization. So staying on point um, with HIPAA, let's talk about some very basics, which I know we're all aware of, but I'll cover just in case. HIPAA is a federal law comprised of the privacy rule, security rule, and breach notification rule and provides federal protections for personal health information held by covered entities. HIPAA is balanced so that it permits the disclosure of personal health information um, needed for patient care and other important purposes. And we're going to go through uh, some of those purposes. Um, I think I'll do it in another, in one of the later slides. But just to briefly identify for you, the privacy rule was the rule that we originally Originally had in place. Um, many of us think of it back from 1996, where we had to start getting authorizations and we needed to have a policy on hand on how we could treat patient information. The security rule came into place later and is often also referred to as the High Tech Act. And it applies to electronic protected health information. Um, so specifically information that's being transferred and traveling uh, electronically. And that could mean even being stored on a, la a laptop, an electronic device. Um, so really, anything that we're doing nowadays, assuming that we're not operating a, uh, a practice that's entirely paper with not a single computer uh, or smartphone uh, available on the site, um, we, we all are going to have to abide by the security rule. And I'm not going to go into the security rule much more other than this slide, I don't believe. We'll see where my conversation that's one-sided takes me. But the security rule has its own requirements. Um, we, we mandatorily have to have a security policy on site uh, that, that specifies who our security officer is. If we're using the internet in any capacity, I uh, will touch upon the security risk assessment tool later on, so we'll get to that. The breach notification rule is really what we're going to focus most of our time on today. And that is the rule that specifies um, when do we have an obligation to report report to our patients for a breach, and also report to the government. And when do we have to notify the media? When, uh, when does that come into play? And uh, when does that come into play with potential fines? So that's a, those are the three rules that, that comprise HIPAA at the moment, obviously subject to change. Um, these are all federal, 
So uh, the Congress has enacted uh, these rules. And what happens is with, with any legislation, uh, sometimes they're modified piecemeal um, by uh, uh, bills where, where, uh, where language is stuffed in uh, at the last minute. So if we do see any change to um, the Affordable Care Act, which who knows if that's going to happen, there might be bits and pieces that are also uh, chucked in uh, from, uh, from one of our representatives uh, that might modify HIPAA. So we'll be watching for that as well. Who has to abide by HIPAA? Well, obviously you're on this call, so you think that you have to abide by it. Um, health plans, uh, healthcare clearinghouses, and any healthcare provider uh, has to abide by it. And by extension, it's important to note that business associates that we as well, um, I believe, you know, very clearly could have exposure. Uh, whether that exposure is directly from the government or exposure by contract or by implied relationship with a covered entity, um, absolutely I could see liability being extended to a business associate. And um, any, any covered entity that is sharing protected health information in any capacity more than in just an, an incident, incidental uh, access, so in other words, your internet service provider who does not necessarily have access to your computer system uh, is not necessarily a business associate, but, um, but your billing company most certainly is a business associate you're required, required to have a contract with. And that contract should have what's called indemnification, which is um, a legal uh, language uh, protection that allows risk shifting. Um, so as a covered entity, we want to make sure that the business associate is 100% responsible for any of their mistakes or misuse or uh, breach of HIPAA, and we can contractually protect against that, and it's very important that you do so and take advantage of that. What's protected under HIPAA? Protected health information, which is individually identifiable information. Um, now, that includes photos, license numbers, anything that you could tie back to a person, social security number. I would even argue that if you put an implant in somebody that has an identifying number and you have an x-ray where that number's on there, I would be very careful. That may be identifying. Obviously, patient name. Um, now, the Office for Civil Rights is not super unreasonable. For those of us out there who are calling patients' names in the waiting room, you obviously need to be able to function, but we need to be careful and have protections in place on how we treat patient information as well. Um, I'm not going to spend time on that. So what is breach reporting? And that's the, the topic that we're here to cover today. As of September 23rd, 2013, the HIPAA breach notification rule came into place and requires that HIPAA-covered entities and their business associates provide notification to the secretary following a breach of unsecured protected health information. So this is a new requirement. What is a breach? A breach is the acquisition, access, use, or disclosure of protected health information in a manner not permitted by HIPAA, which compromises the security or privacy of the protected health information. What disclosures are we authorized to make? And this is a covered entity may disclose protected health information as follows. And this is what your privacy policy should be detailing. And a lot of times um, a people send you over their privacy policy, and I'm surprised to see that even though they stole them from 
a reputable association. Uh, the, the privacy policy is actually not up to date um, with the new rule requirements uh, as of 2013. So you may want to make sure that you have a, a proper a privacy policy in place. But we are allowed to make disclosures to the patient, the actual individual, for treatment, payment, or healthcare operations purposes. And the, those don't really get much more specific, but you're allowed to release to insurance companies um, uh, for treatment, so to a referring provider, another covered entity uh, that's involved in the care, pursuant to a valid authorization. Now, if you're not sure if you received a valid authorization, if it's the proper HIPAA uh, authorization form that, that the courts make available, um, uh, you receive just an attorney letter, not a company necessarily by an authorization, you need to be very careful not to release. And that, that's something that if you needed to send to our office or to your other attorney, um, you should check before you make a disclosure if you're not sure whether or not that it's actually valid. Because that's an easy way to have a, a, a problem where you're not abiding by the HIPAA requirements. By agreement, um, as permitted, you're allowed to disclose. So by agreement, and why I say is as permitted, you, know, you may have the government come in and, uh, and, and sign uh, some sort of cooperation agreement with you where uh, they have authority to view. Um, and, and by having authority, I mean that we've requested and received uh, statutory authority where uh, they are allowed to come in and, and take information uh, from you about a patient. Um, there are circumstances where you're required to disclose. Uh, when the individual patient asks you to, um, if the secretary of uh, HSS asks you to, uh, sorry, HHS, and um, also, uh, of course, if there's a valid subpoena issued by a judge, um, you're required, or grand jury subpoena, something like that, you're required to send the information in. But again, it has to be in proper form, and you need to be specifically authorized to make the disclosure. A breach which I don't like to use the word breach. Before your office or your practice or your facility even classifies something as a breach, I would not put that word on it. Don't write on the file potential breach, patient so-and-so breach. Don't even use the B word um, until you have had it assessed internally or by your outside counsel. Because once we qualify it as a breach, then arguably you've already made the decision that you have an obligation to report. And before we go any further, and I go through what a breach um, excludes, and by that we get to what, what it includes and, and what we're going get, to get to today with some of the examples. Um, I just want to talk about the disclosure process. When we have a breach and we have a duty to report, the worst thing we could do is try to cover it up and not report. And um, a recent enforcement action, which we'll talk about uh, coming from 2017, is there was a, a large fine assessed against a large system that um, the fine came in place simply because the organization did not report in a timely manner. And that's the first time failure to notify has resulted in a, uh, a fine for, for an entity. Uh, which is why it was most notable. Um, so there are severe penalties for failing to report. Um, and uh, So we have to report once we have a breach. However, I will tell you that as a compliance attorney, 
Um, if there's no obligation to report, if we make that determination, we're obviously much better off because as soon as we have an outside agency or government um, authority coming in and sniffing around, uh, the authority that they have is so broad and um, there's nothing to prevent a fishing expedition. And once resources are expended towards an investigation, it is very, very unlikely that there will be a resolution without some sort of financial penalty, um, which is obviously uh, to the detriment of the organization. So if I can keep third parties out, I try to do so to the best of my ability. Now that's not how most, no, I wouldn't say most, but that's not how some of my colleagues operate. They are preventatively cautious and they will, what I consider to over-report. And I believe that that is absolutely to the detriment in, in, in definite certain circumstances um, uh, to the client. Uh, and we'll, I'll explain that a little bit more once we go through the process of determining whether or not you have a breach because really your counsel is, is who should be taking responsibility for helping with the assessment on whether or not a breach has actually occurred which means that the people that you're working with should be taking personal responsibility as to whether or not you actually have an obligation to report. And if, if, if you, specifically if I, can stand behind my thought process and my assessment on why what's happened is not a breach, well, then that's, that's the burden that I've taken on for you so you can sleep better at night uh, knowing that, that you do not have an obligation to report. Um, in addition, obviously, to having financial exposure uh, by reporting for failing to adhere to certain requirements under HIPAA, um, there's also the, the negative stigma. Uh, if you have a, a major uh, uh, breach that's been determined and we have an obligation to notify the public, um, there may be direct ramifications to volume that's coming in. So um, we want to be really careful before we put the label and classify as a breach. So let's talk about what is not a breach. Not a breach is any unintentional acquisition, access, or use of protected health information by a workforce member or person acting under the authority of a covered entity or a business associate if such acquisition, access, or use was made in good faith and within the scope of authority and does not result in further use or disclosure. I recently had a case with a hospital where an employee claims that she was told by a supervisor to check a schedule of an affiliated facility for one of the physicians and to give information on that doctor's schedule. And she accessed patient information that she was not necessarily directly involved in the care. The hospital had a problem with this individual and was looking to make a case against her to, to have her relieved of her duties for unrelated causes. Um, they made a case against her and they used her access and, and defined it as a breach and, uh, and, and, and made a reporting to the Office of Civil Rights as part of the employment record. And I thought that was completely ludicrous and to uh, their severe detriment, um, and it has also resulted in obviously additional penalties to uh, to the nurse and and to the facility. So I don't, you know, here in my mind, if there actually was a valid order from a supervisor for her to 
uh, in some scope of her uh, 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 position to make a good faith inquiry um, into this physician's record, assuming that I'm hearing the correct story and that it could be documented as such, um, why that was included or, or made a case for, for it to affirmatively be classified as a breach, again, is, is a bit beyond me. Um, so it's interesting how some uh, like to interpret. But in my mind, if you have a workforce member who is under um, a contract or under policy or procedure uh, with an employer that they are bound by HIPAA restrictions and acting within the scope of their authority, um, then in that instance, their exposure to information would not be, would not constitute what I consider to be a breach. Now, let's talk about what would potentially be a reportable breach. Um, it also depends how the information is used. But you're treating celebrities, and you have members of your front desk um, that are access, accessing their health information for no apparent reason. Um, <clears throat> if you find out about this, and you think that possibly one of your hourly employees may be utilizing this information for, for gain uh, in some way or, or publicizing this information, um, you, know, you would have to take immediate steps to, uh, to address that. And I would get counsel involved immediately um, to make sure that you're documenting appropriately. And also, we would have to assess each individual circumstance to see whether or not the activity actually constitutes a breach. Um, now, a breach also excludes a disclosure from one authorized person to another authorized person. So this would be covered entity to covered entity, practitioner to practitioner. Um, that, that would be completely excluded because both individuals who are authorized uh, clearly are, are um, able to have the information that they're in possession of. A disclosure of protected health information where a covered entity or business associate has a good faith belief that an unauthorized person to whom the disclosure was made would not reasonably have been able to retain such information. Now, I've had instances of this where, um, uh, where it could go either way, depends on the facts, but information was improperly posted by a clearinghouse um, to, uh, to a healthcare provider, the wrong healthcare provider, and uh, there's been immediate notification, or in some instances there have been delayed notification. The information was subsequently taken down. Um, there's different ways to combat the classification of breach, um, or you may have to make a decision that actually there, there was uh, some uh, potential for untoward conduct there. But you would have to look at a case-by-case -case basis, you know, who had access to the information from the healthcare provider, um, was that person under some sort of contract where, or nexus to the entity where they would be considered a part of the covered entity, a workforce member working in good faith. Um, have they not retained that information, and uh, and can you can you say that it was taken down fast enough to mitigate exposure? Um, there is also additional uh, elements that we have to consider whether or not uh, it, there's an exclusion from breach, and that is whether or not there's a low probability of compromise. Um, a prohibited use or disclosure is a breach unless the covered entity demonstrates there's a low probability of the protected health information has been compromised based on a risk assessment of at least the following factors. And this is where your counsel would come into play. Um, I recommend having uh, a third-party assessment if, if there's a, a big enough issue, uh, so that way it's not just internal um, on whether or not there's a low probability. And the factors are the nature and extent of the protected health information involved, 
including the types of identifiers and the likelihood of re-identification. The unauthorized person who used the protected health information or to whom the disclosure was made, whether the protected health information was actually acquired or viewed, and the extent to which the risk to the protected health information has been mitigated. Now, some examples where I've had to do uh, uh, this type of assessment are, are pretty simple. On exit, we hand the patient um, uh, the wrong uh, uh, billing record uh, receipt uh, invoice type thing that actually has patient name and procedure code, and that's just a, a simple mistake. Okay, well, you, that happened. Um, what did we do about it? Did someone realize it before the patient got out of the parking lot? Did we send someone out to go collect it? Um, did the patient confirm that they didn't take a picture of it? They don't have a photographic memory where they looked at it and, and uh, someone notable and they now have information that they shouldn't have. So these types of, the, the facts is what's going to be determinative of whether or not there's a low probability of, of compromise and whether or not uh, the actual circumstances should be uh, considered a breach. Now, the important part of, of what I'm talking about here is not retaining each individual factor or even retaining these three bullet points of what a breach specifically excludes. The important takeaway from the definition of breach is this. If you have a disclosure that um, is not specifically authorized by HIPAA, that is not to another covered entity, is not for treatment, payment, or operations purposes, is not by an authorized, within the scope of their work, staff member. If those things happen, and it's outside the realm of, of what standard is, there needs to be an assessment. And that's what the government is going to come in and look at. Whether or not you have recognized and taken the time to put in preventative measures in place, so policies and procedures to protect against these unauthorized uh, disclosures, and then if you've taken steps to mitigate any potential damages um, or, or any potential compromise of the information after the fact. That's the important takeaway. So now we're going to get to the notification requirements if you actually have a breach. Um, who do I have to notify? You have to notify the Office for Civil Rights. They are the ones tasked with enforcing the privacy, security, breach notification rules, as I've mentioned before. And um, this is everyone who has to participate as we went through, providers, facilities. There's two kinds of breaches. There's big breaches, where there's more than 500 patients impacted. And then there's small breaches, where there's less than 500 patients impacted. The big breach requires immediate action, okay? 60 days of the breach date you must send by first class mail or by email, if you're authorized, notice to the patient. And there must be a description of the breach, information that was involved in the breach, steps taken by the individual to protect themselves from potential harm, and a brief description of what the covered entity is doing to investigate the breach, mitigate the harm, and further prevent breaches. If you can't find the patient, you are required to send substitute notice. You're required to post about the breach on your homepage for at least 90 days, or provide notice in major print or broadcast media 
So this has to be very, very public that you had this breach. And you may recall reading about certain notifications. I'm not going to name the hospitals. Um, uh, but, you know, when a hospital has a breach, you read about it in the news. Um, and uh, it's big news that such and such institution has been compromised and this many patients have been uh, impacted. And the, the financial liability that results is substantial. You're required to provide a toll-free number that remains active for at least 90 days where individuals can learn if their information was involved in the breach. Now, obviously, that means this number has to be manned by someone available and authorized to discuss uh, this information. The media notification for a big breach, more than 500 patients, um, requires the covered entity provide notice to the prominent media outlets serving the state or jurisdiction. And uh, it could be in the form of a press release. It must be provided without unreasonable delay. So a lot of the, the larger institutions where this might happen, they don't normally act very nimbly. Um, there's a lot of internal bureaucracy, uh, and you need to make sure that this is not left hanging. Uh, open, and it has to be within a reasonable time frame. And we'll talk about that with the re recent uh, action against um, the large provider that happened. Notice to the secretary, for more than 500 individuals affected, you must notify the secretary without a reasonable delay, in no case later than 60 cal uh, calendar days from, from discovery of the breach. Now, don't forget, the discovery of the breach is different than the classification of the breach. The discovery is we know something happened. We then have to do an assessment to determine whether or not it is or is not a breach. And then once we decide it actually is a breach, depending on how many people are impacted, we have to take action. Small breach notification notice to the secretary. If it's less than 500 people, you have an annual duty to report, which is due at the end of 60 days of the calendar year. So at the end of the year, each entity, small and large, is supposed to do a, um, a consolidated assessment for the government and let the government know these are the breaches that we've had over the year. Now, remember, these are not mere disclosures. Um, these are disclosures that have been uh, assessed and determined that they are actually a breach. Uh, and here's the link for reporting at the end of the year. And it has some more information there on, uh, on the reporting. Um, the covered entity is ultimately responsible for ensuring individuals are notified. However, the covered entity may delegate the responsibility to the business associate. The business associate is the reason why there's a breach. And this is why it's so important to have proper contracts with the business associates. So that way it's very clear who's responsible for what, and if there's financial penalty, who's going to step up and pay. So if you're not sure if you have proper business associate agreements in place, you're not sure if you have the risk-shifting uh, um, language in there that we talked about, indemnification. Please, please go back and review. Um, this is a standard, uh, fairly standard document, at least for our firm, where we put in place indemnification. And we're happy to help you uh, solidify. It's not a lot of work. It's not a big legal bill. But most certainly, uh, it, it could be uh, <laughs> a, a penny-wise, pound-foolish for sure. Um, you want to make sure you get this in place because it could exponentially cost you tremendously more um, on, on the back end. Examples of exposure. Um, now, this is a 2015 settlement. Cancer Care Group PC uh, had a stolen laptop from an employee's car. 
and they ended up settling with OCR for $750,000. Um, this is a large oncology private practice, uh, 13 radiation oncologists serving hospitals and clinics throughout Indiana. The findings by OCR was that there was widespread noncompliance with the HIPAA security rule. They had not conducted, on an enterprise level, a, a, a risk analysis when the breach occurred. Now, this is a, a, a long time ago breach in 2012. They had no written policies in place specific to the removal of hardware. They weren't tracking which employees had what hardware and what access. Um, and, uh, and I'm assuming here, it doesn't say, but that they didn't have proper um, protections on the laptop that was stolen. Patient information may have been on the desktop. I'm not sure exactly. But um, oh, they had unencrypted media ba uh, backup media. Um, so significant, significant risk. And what happened? Significant, significant exposure. Um, so you'll see here a theme that those of us who are prepared, that have the policies that are doing the training, are going to have less potential exposure if there is a breach, um, uh, whether it's uh, reported properly or not. Uh, St. Elizabeth's Medical Center, November 2012, OCR received a complaint alleging noncompliance with the HIPAA rules, a workforce member's use of unsecured internet-based document sharing. Now, this is a big thing, and many of us are using um, uh, programs that the, uh, the, the owners of, the, of the, the software are saying to us that they are, they are HIPAA compliant. Well, I want to make sure that's in your contract, by the way, with the software vendor that you're utilizing. So if you haven't looked at that, where they're taking responsibility and they're willing to pay if actually they're not encrypted properly, um, you may want to double check those contracts. And before you enter into them, you may want to make sure that you address that with them and have that reviewed by counsel. Um, so SEMC uh, submitted notification to OCR that they had a breach, uh, unsecured electronic protected health information stored in a former workforce member's personal laptop and USB flash drive affecting 595 individuals uh, had gone missing. Um, they also had to pay $218,000, and they had to adopt a robust uh, corrective action plan, which is a settlement agreement with the government that talks about the steps that they're going to take. So this is St. Elizabeth's Medical Center. Hospice of Northern Idaho, they had a stolen laptop, fewer than 500 patients, and they had to pay the government $50,000. Now, that doesn't include legal expenses and internal costs from uh, having to undergo this type of assessment. Um, they failed to conduct an accurate and thorough analysis of the risk to the confidentiality of the electronic protected health information, and they did not adequately adopt or implement security measures sufficient to ensure the confidentiality of electronic protected health information. That was the assessment by the government. So the lesson that I took from this is that it's important for each institution or facility to implement safeguards, perform risk assessments as needed, and report when necessary. I love this one because I love what health insurance companies get in trouble, but I also highlight it because it's another one of those kind of eye-popping, like, oh, I didn't think of that. Where do we have protected health information? Where do we have to be worried about? Where is it in our, in our operation? Affinity Health Plan, who I have no love for, returned copiers at the end of a lease and they did not erase stored data. So as you look around your work facility, think about where are you actually maintaining protected health information. They sent back copiers that were smarter than most people and had retention capacity um, of retaining up to 344,000 individuals' information um, for over years of use. And um, they did not erase the data before sending it over. Question is, 
why didn't their services agreement with the copy uh, place uh, provide them with a, a backup possibly and then uh, a delete it before it left the facility? That's something you may want to make a mental note of if you're still listening. And Affinity had to pay the government $1.2 million for failing to incorporate the electronic protected health information um, stored in the, in the copier's hard drives and its analysis of risks and vulnerabilities um, as required by the security rule. So know where and when you have a responsibility to protect, report and address HIPAA exposure. Now what I want to say about this, um, in addition, about the amount, the number, 1.2 million, is that the government takes into account the size and ability to pay. Um, so Affinity Health Plan, obviously, is a large organization. It's not as big as some of the other insurances, um, but it is uh, it's still a large organization. It's not a, a one-woman medical practice. Um, so had a one-woman medical practice uh, had this happen to her, um, the number would not be 1.2 million. It would be substantially lower, which is why with some of the other plans, you know, we see hospice in Northern Idaho, uh, they had a stolen, um, same thing, stolen uh, information from a laptop from an employee. This is a $50,000 charge. We had St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Um, they had a, a problem here with 200000 So they take into account how big. This is a large dermatology practice. They had an employee lose a thumb drive. Um, and we're going to talk about how we can prevent against that. But they had to pay $150,000 for failing to conduct an accurate and thorough analysis of potential risks and vulnerabilities. And from OCR, they got a little cheeky and they said, as we say in healthcare, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That is what a good risk management process is all about, identifying and mitigating the risk before a bad thing happens. Covered entities of all sizes need to give priority to securing electronic protected health information. So we need written policies and procedures. We need to train workforce members. This is the 2017 um, press release from a 2014 exposure. So it was just settled. Presence Health System, one of the largest healthcare networks serving Illinois. They have over 150 locations, including 11 hospitals, 27 long-term care and senior living facilities, multiple physician offices, healthcare centers, home care, hospice care, behavioral health services. This was um, a very interesting assessment because this system was required to pay $475,000 for lack of timely notice of the breach. January 31st, 2014, OCR received a breach notification report indicating that on October 22nd, so they just missed the 60 days, presence discovered the paper-based operating room schedules, which contained the PHI of 836 individuals, were missing from the surgery room at Illinois. So this is a self-reporting. Um, what happened here? Did an individual put down a magazine and accidentally pick up an additional folder and walk out with it? And then, then finally the facility, you know, facility became aware, realized it. They weren't sure what happened to it. Did the, did the work uh, member just throw it out? Did they shred it? They weren't able to find it. But this is something that could so simply happen to anybody. Um, and then they ended up self-reporting. So I don't know what kind of due diligence they did internally to do an assessment and decide whether or not this is just a, a, an improper use or disclosure. Can it be excluded from breach? Does it have to be a breach? But they decided that it had to be considered a breach. They ended up reporting it. Um, 836 individuals from, from an operating room schedule could easily have been uh, listed on a spreadsheet. It, it could have been anywhere from 10 to 30 pages. We don't know. 
but it doesn't necessarily have to be a massive file or a big thing, right? It could have been small. And still, they had to pay $475,000, and the OCR's investigation revealed that Presence Health failed to notify without, without unreasonable delay, because it's more than 500 patients, so it had to be without a reasonable day within 60 days' notice. So this is a very big deal. This is a lot more uh, punitive than we've seen prior, and it's the first action that I've seen where the assessment is solely identified as because of lack of, um, uh, of, of notice, proper notice. Now, what happens is Presence Health probably has a comprehensive um, HIPAA a policy and procedure manual, and they probably do everything right. And the government devoted resources to this. And I'm just solely conjecturing here, just to give a disclaimer. But I'm guessing that the government put resources in to its assessment, found out that Presence Health was doing plenty right, and still decided they needed to recoup some money to offset their cost. So they decided to levy an opinion against them that the money was owed because of the failure to adhere to the 60-day policy. But now we have a new precedent and we have um, assessment due for lack of timely notice. And that's a big deal in my mind. Um, I only spent one slide on annual reporting for it seems to be small infractions. Why do they make a, why do they make a big deal about annual reporting? Well, it's, it's important, and if someone else reports you before you report on your annual, then you're going to be in much bigger trouble. So you need to make sure that on an annual basis you're, you're looking at what's happened and that on a case-by-case -case basis you're properly documenting uh, disclosures and potential breaches. So proactive HIPAA protections, what do we need to have in place? We need to understand the reporting requirements, which we just went through for big and small. We want to train our staff to identify and properly report breaches. And I'll get to that in, in the next slide. We're going to implement policies and procedures and use them. I'm going to get to that also in the next slide. Have your team in place to address an, uh, any potential breach. And we're going to engage in a security risk assessment on a regular basis. If you haven't been to this website, the healthit.gov, please go to it. There is an online questionnaire that you can use that will take you through um, the elements of the security rule requirements for electronic protected health information. It's the uh, physical, technical, um, and administrative safeguards that you're required to have in place. And it'll take you through one by one. Do you back up your information properly? Do you have proper emergency protocol in place? Do you have proper password protections? Are you they don't actually ask if you're encrypted, but they ask a number of questions to ask if information is being properly transmitted, which indicates the interest in encryption level. So I recommend everyone take it, and if you require you know, counsel assistance, which is completely appropriate for this type of um, uh, exercise, our office does assist with the security risk assessments, um, and uh, you'll need to get your IT provider involved as well. And if your IT provider is someone who has never heard of a security risk assessment or the security risk assessment tool, you may want to consider getting a new IT provider. Policies and procedures addressing HIPAA exposure. Proper patient HIPAA forms, we talked about this briefly, but at a minimum, you need to have a privacy notice in place and you need to have a consent for use with the patient. Um, if you're emailing with the patient, you want to make sure that you have the patient providing the proper email address, you want to have language in there that the patient has access and authorizes you to communicate with them by email uh, at a minimum. Obviously, I'm downplaying the importance of the content that needs to be in the form. That's a whole other conversation on what has to be in there, and it's, it's mind-numbingly boring. You're a lot better off just getting the proper form. Workforce agreements. This is contracts that you have or policies and procedures that should be in place with each of your staff members. Um, and it, ta it talks about documents with the, with the employees 
um, what their requirements are to adhere to HIPAA, and then also puts put the onus on the employees for reporting if there's a problem. And I like to require the employee to take financial responsibility if they're at fault, um, especially if they fail to properly report up the chain. Um, and also it describes what happens to them if they don't properly report. If you have someone who looks to brush something under the rug, well, they, they should be subject to suspension or possibly even termination of their employment. And that needs to be made clear to them up front. Um, you should have a breach notification policy in place, which talks about your assessment if there are disclosures, whether or not something constitutes a breach, and then also specifies what your reporting requirements are. And we can help you with that if anyone needs that. A security agreement I mentioned, but you're required to have it under the security rules. You're doing anything involved with a computer at all at the office or smartphone. Uh, if there's any electronic protected health information involved in the practice at all. And that's going to document, again, what I talked about with the security risk assessment tool, the administrative, technical, uh, and physical safeguards that you have in place to protect the electronic protected health information. Um, and it indicates who the person who's responsible at the site um, for that uh, uh, for that information and protections, and it's something the government's going to ask for if you do happen to have a report or reason to um, uh, to engage. So with that, I'm going to open up for questions. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Uh, <coughs> Jennifer, you have quite a number of questions. Uh, let me just start. Hang on one second here. And like I said, if we don't have enough time, we'll address the rest of these questions offline. Uh, is it required or just suggested to have patients sign a HIPAA form yearly? No, um, it's not required to have a patient re-sign the HIPAA form on an annual basis. Once you have it in place, you have it in place. Um, you may want to ask patients to update information on uh, an annual basis, which I think the majority of providers that I'm aware of uh, do do. Or at each uh, visit, they ask, do you have a change in your information that you'd like to give us? Okay. Uh, does a business associate have to report its breach to the HHS secretary? A business associate does not have an affirmative obligation to report. However, the business associate, depending on your agreement with them, um, is handling your patient information. So your contract with your business associate should specify that the business associate has an affirmative obligation to report to you in a very timely manner their misuse of patient information. Because it has not happened yet, but I am waiting for the day when I have to report that the OCR has taken action against the covered entity because of the business associate's actions. When a college student is seen and the parents are not on the release uh, for medical information, but they are the policy holder, what are we allowed to disclose? And can we disclose the billing information since they are the policy holder? This is a really, really tough one. I'm going to try to make it short because it, it could be long. Um, it depends on which state you're in uh, with the minor rules, if the person's a minor, um, or if the person's not a minor, and, and it's just you have a diff this comes up not only with college, but when you have a different different person responsible for payment than who the patient is, um, you you really want to try to get proactive about that and get consent as soon as the patient comes in or notifies you over the phone that oh the insurance is in this person's name when you get pre authorization, you should require that you have consent to speak with that person because you're allowed to disclose protected health information. Remember what I said for treatment, payment, and operations purposes. But 
if you disclose what the patient thinks is inappropriate, even if you can defend it, you may potentially be reported because people are very, very particular about their health information. So if they find out from their parent, you know I came in for contraception or you know I came in for an abortion, how can my doctor have disclosed that? You're very likely going to be reported. And as we talked about, that allows the government to come in and sniff around on a whole bunch of other issues that you may not have thought were relevant at all. Um, so it opens a big can of worms. So my advice is to the extent that you can, if you have not already, implement policies where if someone else is responsible for, um, uh, for payments than the actual pa patient, you want to make sure that you have a, a, a broad language that authorizes you to disclose anything related to the care to the person who's paying, because that will provide a better defense for you if there is a problem later on. Uh, regarding keeping the documentation for your assessment to determine if it's a true breach, how long do the assessments need to be kept on file? Well, again, at a, at a, at a maximum, there's going to be an annual reporting period. Um, uh, but I, so, so you would end up having a report. Obviously, the, the Office of Civil Rights is a government bureaucracy, so how quickly are they going to engage and, and look into any potential breach? I would make sure to keep that information at a minimum um, safest bet is going to be six years, I would say. I would maybe even just include it in possibly like a closed portion of the medical record if you can, or in your, or in your legal compliance folder. Uh, is a ransomware attack on a covered entity or business associate that encrypts electronic protected health information presumed to be a breach? And what factors do you apply to determine if the ransomware attack resulted in only a low probability of compromise and is not a breach that requires notification? If you have a ransomware attack, there, <laughs> which is unfortunately our, our reality, uh, that's a very good question. I would say we immediately have to notify, and I wouldn't just notify the Office for Civil Rights. The FBI has a, uh, a specific department um, that is, is actually, uh, I'm, I'm aware in multiple states that they have their own divisions. Maybe it's in all states. I'm not 100% clear on that. but. They have ransomware um, offices as well, uh, divisions that are specified. So I, if, if one of my clients called me and said they have a ransomware attack, I would say we must notify the government immediately and get them involved in our internal assessment. And I would notify the FBI and I would notify OCR immediately. Um, is encryption on laptops that travel required if the patient information is cloud-based and requires a login to access? So the cloud base and login to access itself is a level of encryption. So um, I think it's really up to you, but I think the password-protected laptop is definitely the way to go. You may also want to consider adopting um, technology that allows you to remotely swipe. And more importantly, on a basic level, you want to make sure that you're tracking which employees have what technology and what access. And you want to make sure that you have a, a clear ability to be able to wipe, wipe their ability to access the system no matter where they are. Um, and that includes on smartphones, too. I think we get really, really lax with our telephone usage. So we want to be careful and make sure that we have those protections in place. Um, could you address the reason why HIPAA does not cover those people that do not exchange any electronic information? HIPAA does cover those people. It's the security rule that does not cover those people. Um, so HIPAA, from the 1996 version that we're used to, with the privacy rule and talking about disclosures we can make for patients, very much does cover any covered entity 
that it, so any provider, any healthcare practitioner, any facility that is treating people for medical purposes is covered by HIPAA and protected health information can only be disclosed under certain circumstances. However, the security rule adds additional burdens on facilities and, and providers that are electing to utilize electronic um, means uh, in their practice. So whether that's electronic charts or electronic claim submissions or electronic prescribing, any of those things would qualify you for having to comply with the security rule. Must a practice provide annual HIPAA education to their staff and does this include the physician? <laughs> any training should include the physicians as much as they do not like to avail themselves or give their time up for the training. Um, I, I'm not aware, I'd have to double check, but I don't believe that you have an, an affirmative obligation to train necessarily on an annual basis. But I will tell you this, if you have adopted policies and procedures that stipulate that the organization does provide training on an annual basis, you better stick to it. All right, I'm just looking. One last one. Um, is it true that the practice can only charge for CD and postage, usually $6.50 for CD and postage around 98 cents, no matter how many pages are in the medical record? And if we want to send paper charts, we are liable against the High Tech Act and they can file a complaint with HHS? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> okay, so states generally set reimbursement per page if you're doing paper. Um, the federal laws, which um, uh, do address reimbursement uh, for production, um, they say that you're allowed to charge for um, the administrative component and also for the actual cost of the um, uh, devices that you're utilizing to, to remit the, the records if you're doing it uh, uh, electronic records. So if it's a disk or, heart, or um, uh, a thumb drive you're using, you can charge. You can pass the charge through to the patient. Um, and and the states may set uh, each state by state may set a maximum. So in New York, I don't believe they raise it. I think it's still 75 cents a page. New Jersey is a little bit higher. I know some some other states might be higher or lower um, if you're doing a paper record. And and that that um, a specific number for postage that that you gave me, Dr. Brooks, is um, also set by state, so each state would be different for postage. What I will caution is this, is we're all very aware that very few of our patients are really happy to pay for anything. Um, so an additional assessment to patients for records, um, you, you better make sure that your, your practice or your facility is also um, putting together an itemized invoice on documenting why you're charging for what um, because as soon as a patient gets an additional charge, as legitimate as it is, um, and I think it's very legitimate and I like to see you get paid for everything, um, there's always a chance that you will irritate a patient and it's a very easy way for there to be a report made. When you have an angry patient who goes home, um, the HIPAA complaints, as I said at the beginning of our broadcast, is, um, um, is one of the easiest complaints that a patient can levy against you. So you want to be really careful and just make sure that you document, document, document like everything else. It's all in the paperwork. If you're going to assess a charge, maybe there's a duplicative uh, fee for x-ray copying. And, and then on top of that, there is a certain administrative portion you want to pass along. I would make sure that that's a small amount. I would stay within the statutory authority if it's per page, if you're doing paper. 
um, you know, make sure that you're on target here with what you're going to be charging. Send an itemized invoice with the records, and um, and that way, if, if you know there is a complaint, we have a very quick and easy response. Okay, Jennifer, if you want to put your contact information on the screen, uh, in lieu of time, I think we will answer the rest of the questions offline, uh, and. Uh, please use that contact information if you have further questions. You can just email her directly. If you forward them to us, I will forward them on to Jennifer. I do find uh, that Jennifer's twice-weekly newsletter is extremely helpful in addressing FAQs that come up in a day-to-day -day healthcare operation. Uh, again, uh, thank you very much for joining us. You can uh, register for our future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you again and have a great day.